nice sunny day in London, and I'm your guest. Yeah, am I? I'm your guest. I can't. I'm. I feel like I'm tongue-tied. I'm just. It's just one of those days. Anyway, so I'll do my take two. Hi everyone, it's your girl Shagulala Salami, and it's the Shagulala Salami show. It's a virtual cafe podcast. Um, and I think of it as a very futuristic, um, you know, spaceship that my virtual cafe is being held in or, you know, hosted from. Um, yeah, so I've been drinking lemon water because, you know, we feel like bugs are all over the place and I'm going to, my body has been fighting it. So I've been drinking really bitter lemon water, but you know, it is what it is. Who have I got here with me today? Hello, Shagilola. I am Roland Chesters. I am a disability advocate and author of Ripples from the Edge of Life, which was published in May this year, which is the story of my HIV and AIDS diagnosis 12 years ago, when I was told that I had two weeks to live. And the book also contains the stories of 13 other people from around the UK who have also got a HIV AIDS diagnosis ranging in date from the early 1980s up until the most recently diagnosed person in the book, who was diagnosed in 2015. Oh, hello, Ronald. Um, it's nice, nice to have you um, in the cafe. Um, now, it is a virtual cafe, so what would you like to drink? I think I need to bottle you up first, you know, before we start talking. <laughs> okay, thank you for the offer. And it's Roland, by the way, not Ronald, Roland. Oh, sorry. Like the rats. Think of the rats. Everybody does that. <laughs> Roland, Roland. Yes, sorry. That's all right. What I would like to drink, please, is a lovely cup of green tea. That actually sounds quite good, though, especially with this weather, you know, mm. uh, you know, just sort of help clear. Would you like a dash of lemon in it as well? That would be very healthy. Thank you. Okay. We will get that, you know. I really wish, you know, I had this perfect image of a virtual cafe inside a spaceship somewhere. I think that would be very representative. But, you know, in the meantime, you know, something... I can that you... hear the cups clinking in the background, you know. <laughs> Sound effects. Wonderful. I, I know, right? I really need to upgrade my virtual cafe. You know, I need to make it more realistic. Okay, my to-do list is increasing. Um, but then something <laughs> you said earlier on caught my attention. You were told you had two weeks to live. Yes, that's right. Tell me about that. That uh, sounds really well, scary. Um, well, the way that it happened was that for over a period of two years before I was diagnosed, I was becoming increasingly unwell. Mm -hmm. I was losing the use of my arms and my legs, the ability to speak, losing lots of memory, becoming very unfocused. I was noted at work. I was working as a civil servant in Westminster. I saw lots and lots of different specialists, had lots of different tests. Nobody could tell me what the problem was. My partner took us away to Paris for a weekend, thinking that it'd be good to get away for a weekend. And I actually collapsed in the underground and he had to carry me home. And I don't remember that, but he does. And he's started coming with me to all of these specialist appointments because obviously he was concerned. I ended up seeing a chest specialist in a local hospital. They thought they found something on my lungs, which actually turned out to be nothing more than chickenpox scars. But the specialist, recognizing that we were a same-sex couple, asked if I'd ever had a HIV test. And I hadn't. 
We'd been 10 years at that point in a monogamous relationship. I'd only had one previous relationship. And so I thought there was no need for me to have a HIV test. But I was desperate. I thought I was going mad because nobody could tell me what the problem was. So I said to the specialist, please test me, test me for anything because I need to know. I had the test done on Thursday, the 31st of August, 2006. And I told the consultant, the specialist, that we were about to go on holiday for two weeks on the Saturday. So I would pick up the results when we came back from that holiday. The following day, the Friday, I staggered into my office to put on my out of office message. My partner, Richard, was at home packing. When I got home, there were no cases packed. And when I asked Richard why, what had happened, he put his arms around me and he started to cry. And he's a big chap. He's strong emotionally, physically, and is not given to crying. He told me that the specialist had phoned home to get my office number to tell me that if I went away for two weeks, I would come back in a cardboard box. But Richard persuaded the specialist that he would tell me when I got home. I was HIV positive. I had AIDS. My AIDS-defining illness was progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. It's taken me 12 years to be able to say that. It's a brain disease, which in my case affected the cells at the base of the brain, so the ones governing the motoring skills, hence my almost paralysis. It has a 5 to 10% chance of survival. So it was grim. But out of all of that, my biggest regret is that it was the man that I love, that loves me, that took it upon himself to deliver that diagnosis to me. Against all medical protocols, and obviously we've talked about it since, I don't think had the roles been reversed, I don't think I would have had the courage to be able to do that. So I'm immensely grateful to him for having taken that on his own shoulders. Wow. Um, <clears throat> wow, okay. Um, now, sort of as one virtual cafe friend, you know, like everyone comes to a cafe, go to a bar, and you know, they bear it all out, you know. So you guys were monogamous. So, yep. you know, most of it, so how did it come about? Was it before you guys got together? So uh, Richard was tested after I was diagnosed and the results came back that he's negative. And again, I'm extremely lucky. I do lots of voluntary work in the HIV sector nowadays. And I know of many couples where one has been diagnosed positive and the other one isn't. And that has meant that their relationship has not survived. Ours has. But to answer your question, because I was so ill, uh, the doctors were able to work out that I had become infected probably about 15 years before I was diagnosed. And working backwards, I was 15 years previously, I was with my then only other partner. Whilst well, before I met him, he'd been involved in a very bad car accident about two years before and had to have lots of reconstructive facial and leg and arm surgery, many operations. Whilst he and I were together, he became quite ill, lots of night sweats, unexplainable. 
saw lots of doctors. Doctors told him that it was probably a result of the loads of anaesthetics that he'd had to have for the operations, which was still working through his system. Now I know that those are symptoms of HIV. He was given lots of blood transfusions before blood was screened. You know that now blood is screened so that there is no chance of any kind of infection being carried in the blood, but that was before that started to happen. I've um, tried to contact him since, um, but I can't find him anywhere. And I suspect that he probably is no longer with us. Oh dear. That's, that's really, you know, sad to hear. But I mean, we're quite pleased, you know, that you've, you know, you guys have, you know, fought through it all and you're here. Um, so when did you decide, you know, after everything that's going on, I take it you're feeling much better now. Yeah, thank you. Oh, good, good, good. Um, so when did you, after you've gone through this, you know, what I assume was the most emotionally draining, overwhelming period of your life, when did you decide to, you know, put this all down in a book? Well, being told that you have two weeks to live, I essentially held my breath for 14 days. And on the 15th day, I woke up and I was still here, still alive. And I kind of thought, well, I need to do something about that. That was 12 years ago. My book was published earlier this year. So it's taken me, what, 11 years to be in a position where I have felt that I can share that story with the wider world. And the reasons I've put the book together are multiple. Primary reason is that it is a cathartic process. It is, if you like, my legacy. I have no children. What else am I going to leave to the world? It was also because I know that HIV and AIDS still carries a huge amount of stigma. And stigma is created by fear and fear is created by ignorance, the lack of information. So if this book, this warts and all book, can dent to a certain degree that stigma, then my job has been done. It's also to give a voice to those other people. My story in terms of HIV is not unique or special. 107,000 people living with HIV in the UK at the moment, and each and every one of them has got a unique, special story. But I can only give voice to mine and 13 others. And hopefully this will empower other people to come forward, raise their head above the parapet and say, I might be living with this, but that doesn't mean that you can't touch me, reach out to me, speak to me, understand me, support me. That is very, 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 very true. Um, and, you know, I think it is very brave of you, you know, very, because, you know, you're bearing your soul out, you know, in a book to tell people that, you know what, there is more to me than a diagnosis. Um, so what did you find, you know, the publishing process when you decided you were going to put your book, you know, your, your, what your experience down on paper, how long did it take you to write? And then when you finished writing it, how did you then decide, okay, I've got this finished manuscript, I need to get it published. You know, what was your process in getting all of that done? Okay, so the process actually was the other way around. Well, I started off approaching several publishers before I 
started writing it just with the concept, the idea. And the majority of them came back and said, oh, you can't have a book that is both a memoir and a self-help. It's either one or the other. You've got to decide which one you want to be. And I thought, no, actually, this is my book. This is how I want the book to be. So I'll go down the self-publishing route. And then I thought, actually, because of the brain disease, things are still a bit scrambled up there. So I don't know that I will be able to put things in the right consequential order, remember everything that happened and so on and so forth. So I thought I'd use a ghostwriter. So I did a bit of research, found a wonderful, wonderful chap, Tom Henry, ghostwriter, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend him. And he came and spent many days, many hours, sat on my sofa with his little recorder and his notebook and his list of questions. And we just talked. He would ask me questions, really probing, deep questions, and brought back some painful memories, made me think of things in a way that I hadn't thought of them before. And he then took it all away, transcribed it, sent it to me to check, and then put it into a proper consecutive sequential narrative, which forms the book. The book is in three parts. So the first part is my story, as told to Tom. I then gave Tom a list of people who are, have been around me since my diagnosis. So obviously Richard, my partner, my line manager at work and colleagues, friends, family, and other people, medical staff that supported me. And Tom went off and interviewed them, all of them as well, with a list of questions that he and I put together. And their, uh, their take on my HIV diagnosis forms the second part of the book. And the third part of the book are the 13 other HIV positive people. I reached out to the HIV community and asked for people to come forward who are willing to share their story. And again, Tom and I put together a series of questions. Tom interviewed them and did the same thing with their stories. And it has to be said of those 13 people, not everybody has used their real name because they are concerned about the impact of sharing their story will have on them and the people that they hold dear. That stigma is still very prevalent. I can imagine. See, now, because, you know, I always think I'm a business person and, you know, so I, you know, so I don't want to come as a, okay, fine. So money-wise, because when you're saying you have a ghostwriter and, you know, he's coming to your house, he's interviewing you, he's going out, he's interviewing a lot of people. In my mind, I'm thinking that's going to cost a lot of money, especially for the UK. Oh, yes. But I'm in the fortunate position that I, had a small legacy from my mother. Ah. And that's what I use the legacy for. And wherever she is, I'm kind of hoping that she's proud of what I've used her money for. To give a voice to this hidden community, to enable people to understand what the impact of a traumatic diagnosis like that can have. The stigma that still surrounds the condition has a huge impact on the mental health of people living with HIV. The suicide rate amongst HIV positive people is a third higher than in the rest of the population, purely because of stigma. It is the stigma that is killing people. Nowadays, HIV is no longer a death sentence. We have the medication. 
that will en enable people to live potentially a long life. But it's a stigma that kills. And I'm hoping that my mother is proud that I have made use of her money in this way to leave what I consider to be my legacy. No, definitely, you know, well done, you know, well done for you. Uh, well done to you. Now, see, again, my, my, my brain cells is just, I've just got, you know, pound signs, you know, because I've never actually thought about using a ghostwriter just because I always assumed that, you know, it would be quite expensive. Um, so can you give, so if anyone was listening and they wanted to, they were considering getting a ghostwriter, um, can you give them, you know, so how many, how long is your book in terms of pages or word count? And how many days worth of work did your ghostwriter, you know, do for you? And in total, you don't have to give us an exact figure, but just the range so that people can get an idea. So if anyone was ever considering, okay, they need, they've got a story to tell, or for one reason or the other, they're not able to do the writing themselves, but they wanted to get, you know, a ghostwriter, you know, like what is sort of like a good working figure that they can then sort of think, okay, this is a nice budget to work towards. So the book is uh, 270 pages long, which is about 80,000 words. Um, the fee that Tom charged me, which I think it, for me was an acceptable fee, was 20 pounds an hour. So that involved him uh, doing the interviews, recording, transcribing, and then taking the transcript and reformatting it into what is now the finished product of the book. And all in all, I would say that he spent probably, I think, in region something like 50 hours doing that. So bearing in mind that he interviewed me, second part of the book, there were eight people that he interviewed, and third part of the book, another 13 people that he interviewed. Okay, no, that's not, that's not too bad, actually. That's not too bad because I thought you were probably going to say something like maybe three thousand pounds or five thousand pounds. I was actually quite scared because I thought, oh, he's come to your house several times. He's gone to see so many people. Okay, no, that sounds that sounds quite reasonable. I think. Um, I I found it reasonable. It was kind of I hadn't really thought about it in advance. I suppose my 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 need my urgency was just to get it out and get it finished. So I hadn't actually set a budget in my head but I think that it was money very well spent. I don't think that I would have had the motivation, the tolerance, the patience, the commitment to sit down, <coughs> excuse me, and, and write the book myself using Tom and you know as a business person as well knowing that I was paying Tom to do this was a great stimulation to making sure that it was completed. Yes, no, definitely, definitely. So remind us again, what's the title of your book? Ripples from the Edge of Life. Okay. And can I explain the title to you? Yeah. So it's ripples because the person who receives this diagnosis is not the only one impacted. It has a ripple effect on the people around that person. And also when you tell other people it has a ripple effect. You might tell one person and you tell that person in confidence, but that person then tells another person. And once the ripples start, you can no longer control them. You don't know how far it's going to go. And because this book is about empowerment, it's about standing up and saying, actually, I'm not afraid of letting that go. 
now that the book is out there, I have no control over who knows this, but it doesn't scare me. It doesn't worry me. And ripples from the edge of life, because so many people living with HIV do feel that they are on the edge of life. They're living behind a plate glass window looking in and they are marginalized. Many HIV positive people are living in poverty because they are unemployed, because they are isolated. So ripples from the edge of life. Okay, that, that definitely makes um, <clears throat> a lot of sense. So is it just available on Amazon or is it ever available? It's on Amazon or people can purchase it. Amazon is on is an ebook or a hard copy. Uh, people can purchase hard copies from my own website, which is luminate, L-U-M-I-N-A-T-E dot U-K dot com. Oh, that's a new one, U-K dot com. Yeah. Oh, right. I've not come across that one. I'm used to .co.uk. Okay. So luminate.uk.com. Right. Okay. And if anyone wanted to connect with you, um, how can they do so? Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Or again, on the website, all contact details are there. And more than happy to speak to anybody. Oh, fabulous. So it's luminate.uk.com. And your book is Absolutely. called Ripples from the Edge of Life. Absolutely. Right. I got it all. I got it all. Any final words of wisdom to, any, um, to anyone who's listening to the show now? I think hope. There is always hope in the darkest of times, in the darkest of nights. <clears throat> there is always a reason to find hope. And that's what this book is about. Myself, the 13 other people who've donated their stories have all gone through some very, very dark times. But we've all come out the other end, perhaps older, perhaps wiser, perhaps sadder. But we've all got through with hope. Well, thank you very much. Um, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Um, and I hope, you know, you get lots and lots of sales. And I'm almost certain, well, I don't know your mom, but I can imagine, you know, wherever she is now, you know, she's feeling quite proud of you for taking the really bold step to put your story out there in the world, especially because you know that it's a ripple. And when it's, once it's out there, you're not going to get it back. And I hope that, you know, anyone who's listening to the show um, you know, if they're going, whatever it is that they're going through, you know, they should, you know, hopefully you will inspire them to know that even, you know, you're not a diagnosis and, you know, whatever the doctors tell you, you know, would not always be your end, you know, because you were told, you know, two weeks and here you are 12 years down the line, you know, I can't, I, I don't even, because, you know, it's one of those things where you hear these things that a doctor say you only have X amount of time. But, you know, you then stay and you then live considerably longer than that, you know. So, you know, you know I'm, I'm quite pleased and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show to talk to us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, as well to everyone listening to the show, I urge you to please go um, and check out his book. Um, go on Amazon um, and his website is luminate.uk.com. Until next time, it's your girl, Shekilola Salami, and it is the Shekilola Salami Show. Bye now.